Lisa Cortez rose to impressive heights in the music business and in producing fiction films, now she's directing documentaries. Her latest is Little Richard, I Am Everything. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Lisa Cortez held several jobs in the music business after talking her way into Def Jam. Later, she moved into the world of fiction films, rising to become the executive producer of Precious that won two Oscars. She produced Roger Ross Williams' documentary The Apollo about Harlem's famous theater. Then she teamed with Liz Garbus to co-direct the political documentary All In, The Fight for Democracy. Those are just a few of the life experiences that laid the groundwork for her new film. Little Richard, I Am Everything tells the story of the pioneering performer and his wide influence. Mick Jagger describes Little Richard's impact on the Rolling Stones. It was one of our first tours, and we were opening for Little Richard. We were basically a cover band, you know, we hadn't written much. I would be by the side of the stage, like, every night to watch him. English bands, they were very static. Watching Richard C. Harper, don't have to stand there. Use the whole stage. Richard would work that audience, get them up out of their seats, swaying, shouting, waving their arms. Calling, responding stuff. 30 dates, so I saw Little Richard 30 times. You know what I mean? We hear similar testimony of Little Richard being a touchstone for the Beatles. Tom Jones, Jimi Hendrix, and countless other performers. The film explores his background in a milieu of queer black performers who are often erased from rock and roll history. Lisa moves that legacy to the center through music historians such as Fredara Hadley and Jason King. There is this touring circuit in place. We call it very often the Chitlin Circuit where you have various queer black women traveling with gold-plated teeth singing dirty blues or gut bucket blues. I got nipples on my titties, big as the end of my thumb. I got something between my legs, I'll make a dead man. Her stuff can make a listener blush today. So we should not be surprised that Little Richard as Princess Lavone is possible and happens at that point in time. I mean, this is something that is a fact, but it's often not remembered. At that time, there would be drag acts. And Little Richard not only sang and performed in these shows, he also performed in drag. Sugarfoot Sam from Alabama, they had me dressed all kind of ways. He had a stage persona called Princess Lavon. Is it Lavone or is it? I don't know. I've never heard it said out loud. Princess Lavon. And so he would put on makeup, wear a dress, and he would perform as a woman. Homosexuality is illegal. Cross-dressing is illegal. It was seen as acceptable only because of the context. You know, this is happening late at night. People are drinking, and it allows for the lines of reality to become soft and for people to imagine and to conjure. 
So this traveling world was crucial, particularly for any gender non-conforming queer performer who maybe didn't really feel welcome in their home or home community. Little Richard had an ongoing struggle between his sexuality and his Christian faith that's explored in the film. Lisa had her own upbringing in black churches. Her grandfather, Reverend Raymond Coles, led a prominent congregation in Harlem. I started our conversation by asking how religion influenced her. My grandfather, who I spent a lot of time with, um, had a church that still exists in, in Harlem, Greater Mount Calvary Baptist. And he was a community activist, organizer, and a theologian. Um, when he graduated from seminary, he went to Syracuse, New York, and was a, a young minister for the black folks in Syracuse. And the young minister for the white folks was Norman Vincent Peale. So they were lifetime friends. Um, they both moved to New York and start their congregations. But, you know, that's my mother's side of the family. Now, on my father's side, uh, my dad is from uh, Colombia, South America, and he was Catholic. So I was raised, like, like Richard in many ways, going to two different churches, um, having the more staid kind of approach in the Catholic church, of, of ritual, incense, hymns, um, versus the Baptist church, which was more spirited, um, a different kind of communal gathering, um, much better music, and, um, you know, people catching the spirit. So, uh, and I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, because he had lived such a rich life and he was a brilliant storyteller and um, was really revered in his community. And what did the church mean to you? What did you get out of the church? You know, I, going to both of these churches when I was younger and my love of story, I loved Bible stories. You know, I went to Bible camp and you know, certainly spent a lot of time um, with the text in the Old and the New Testament. When I went to Yale, um, one year I was going to be a Near Eastern Languages and Literature major, and you spend a lot of time reading um, the Old Testament. Um, I, I, I remember this class I took on the Book of Job. Um, and kind of looking at the difference of language and looking at the appearance of God in the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is one of, of the, you know, brimstone and hell and fire. Um, and so my connection was initially about story. Then it was scholarly. And then, but I, I grew away, I kind of moved away from the church. I, I felt that um, the God I believe in, who is who has made all of us, who loves all of us, there were factions in these churches that said, if you were anything, that you did not walk a straight line, 
that you did not have a place there. And so I think I, I, I'll, I then moved into a space of, of, calling, of spirituality where I believe in um, a creator who's a mother-father figure um, and that in this creation story, which certainly is backed up through many different religions, th this creation story holds space for everyone. You know, and I think that is part of the the complexity of little Richard's journey because he only he knows that God of the Old Testament, you know, in terms of my background, comparing it with Richard's is I grew away, but I grew into something, I think, bigger and that has even greater capacity for love and acceptance Richard grew into something that did not allow for that. So let me ask you about your uh, roots in music. You you went to Yale and then got into the music business. What was that pathway? Well, I have been love with music from the earliest age. My parents would laugh that I would hear stuff on the radio as a, as a child and I would be humming those tunes as I'd be falling to, to sleep. And I, you know, I, I met Count Basie when I was really young and sang with him um, and his orchestra. Uh, when I was at Yale, I was in New Blue, which is the oldest women's acapella group. And then I even had a band called Cortez in the City of Gold. Um, and it was a kind of like funk meets talking heads uh, experimental group. Um, so I, when I left college, thought I was going to be in a band and get discovered um, and quickly learned that it is very difficult to gain success in the music industry. You got to have this perfect alignment of the look, the sound, the right label, the right manager, the right video. And when I stumbled or created, I should say, when I created a job uh, for myself um, at Def Jam and Rush Artist Management, I quickly learned I loved that I could exercise the art and the commerce in my interactions with the musicians that were there. I could um, interface with the record labels, with the producers, with budgets, with marketing plans, and then moving on to Mercury Records, actually finding and developing artists and presenting them uh, to the world. So it still allowed me to be creative and yet at the same time, be able to support a variety of voices and develop these artists. So what did it mean that you created a job at, at Def Jam? So it's, it's very funny. Um, this friend of mine, Lisa Jones, was putting together a magazine. It was called Diva de Kooning. Um, and she said, you're into music. There's this hip hop thing going on. This is the late, you know, this is the eighties. And, uh, why don't you write about women in hip hop? And I was really into hip hop at this time. Um, and I interviewed a couple of different people around 
the country. One of them is Dominique de Prima, who has a radio station in the Bay Area, but she was a poet. Uh, another was a woman named Tequila Mockingbird, who kind of came out of the punk scene and was kind of like rapping and, you know, hardcore music. It was this great melange of what she was doing. So I had a friend from college, Spencer Beck, who worked at Interview Magazine, and I was so excited about this little article I wrote. And he said, go visit Bill Adler. He's the publicist at Def Jam. So I called up and Bill Adler, who to this day is one of the most generous, brilliant people in the world, said, well, come on over. I'd love to talk to you because nobody was talking about women in hip hop. I went to the office. It was 40 East 19th Street. It was a huge loft. Everybody sat in a semicircle. Um, and the desks looked like they had been thrown out of some high school. It was like a hodgepodge. And Bill Adler and I were talking, and a guy across the room said, who did you talk to in L.A.? I said, Tequila Mockingbird. And he goes, we used to be roommates. And that guy was Lior Cohen. At that time, Lior Cohen was the manager for Run DMC and all of the associated artists at Rush Artist Management. Um, and so I decided I was going to get a job there and I stalked and I came and Tequila Mockingbird came to town two weeks later and I'm a really good baker and I made some gingerbread, uh, you know, pound cakes and I brought them and I brought tequila and I brought res my resume and, um, I, you know, I, I, you could just kind of show up and get in there. So we all hung out and then I kept calling to see if there was any response to like, I gave you this great resume and, you know, I love this music and this culture. And one day I conned myself my way backstage to a, after a Luther Vandross concert and I ran into Lior and I asked him, I said, where's my job? I said, I gave you my resume on the good paper. And he goes, well, call me tomorrow. So I call him the following day and, you know, numerous times. And when I got him on the phone, I was like, Lior, I don't know if I would like to work at the company and you might not want to work for me, but I'll come in for a half a day and work for free. And that turned into five years. <laughs> so timing and chutzpah is also part of the uh, uh, music industry success. And, and just, you know, you, you keep showing up. Rarely do things happen the way you want them to the first time. Um, but I was so passionate about being in this space. So you have this career in the music industry, and then you shift into film. What was that shift? I, I had an incredible run working at Rush, working at Def Jam, going on to Mercury Records, starting my own label, Loose Cannon. And then I felt that I had hit the glass ceiling and it was time to go. Um, and I was traveling through India, trying to figure out what was going to be next. And it was a very hot day in Delhi. And I went to the movie theater because I knew I could sit inside for three to four hours with an intermission watching a great Bollywood film, which still to this day brings me great joy. 
And when I was sitting in the theater, and it certainly was a very challenging time in my life because music did not satisfy me anymore. I had the epiphany of, you know, very succinctly, a picture is worth a thousand words. I had produced and, and been worked with some incredible artists, but if you didn't know the language that they sang their song in, you couldn't access the message. Whereas I did not understand this language, but I knew exactly what was happening. Boy meets girl, they run away, they dance in the mountains, her father comes, he takes them, you know, separates them. And I was like, I want a bigger platform to tell stories on. I want a bit, I guess thinking about my grandfather, I wanted a bigger pulpit. And then what did that become from that inspiration to working as a producer? Starting at ground zero, you know, um, be volunteering at Urban World Film Festival, putting their panels together, networking, networking, networking. Going to the Toronto Film Festival and seeing four films a day, going to every panel that I could, and not just seeing American films, but seeing films from Brazil and France and documentaries and experimental, um, and just really expanding my my knowledge of who were the people that I was responding to, what were the narratives that excited me. I went to the New York Film Academy. I took a producing class, which is a producing and production class. Um, I then volunteered for young filmmakers uh, who were working on projects and needed help. And you, you know, you want music, you want help clearing music. I kind of leaned into relationships that I had to help these filmmakers with their narrative and doc projects. And then one day I got a call from an old friend who said, I'm going to New Orleans to make a movie. And do you want to come and work with me and the director? And that film was Monster's Ball with Lee Daniels. And so you then had a, a run uh, working with Lee Daniels, that included executive producing Precious. Um, and sometime after that, I became more aware of you in the documentary space, uh, first producing and, and then transition into uh, directing. Uh, so amongst the things you produced was Roger Ross Williams' uh, film on the Apollo. And in my understanding, not long after that, you were uh, directing the film All In about Stacey Abrams uh, with, with Liz Garbus. So was that a conscious decision on your part after all this time of kind of having these behind the scenes roles, helping other people realize their vision to step into more of a, a front facing creative role? Well, you know, in between, I was also creating and directing uh, branded documentary content. Um, and uh, I have to always give props to Roger, who I saw him at Sundance and we were at a party and he said, I'm going to do this project on the Apollo and you live in Harlem and you have a music background. I, I need a producer on the ground because my other producers are 
in Los Angeles. Let's work on this together. So I am forever grateful to Roger Ross Williams for really not only opening this door that I had a natural curiosity as a storyteller, but that I could transfer my skills as a producer into this space and also to work with a director who is so committed to a vision of diversity and inclusivity and let's take chances and do things differently, which speaks to my anarchic you know, spirit, um, to then go on and to create and direct the remix Hip Hop Times Fashion and then, you know, because of my Apollo work, I, I spent time with Liz Garbus and Dan Kogan, and we were talking about the election and what kind of work could we do that would help inform people's consciousness about this long struggle for voting rights. And just really had a great synergy with Liz on that project and just kind of like, you know, the G I had the director gene, you know, I think when you have worked with a lot of great directors, you're, I had that the ability to absorb the best and it layered onto my structural background of what is the story? Who's going to tell it? What are the resources that you need? How are you going to market and bring it to, um, you know, the world. And I think a director has their arms around all of that. So this movement to directing is a summation of what I've been doing for a long time. So all those things lead up to you taking on Little Richard. How did that project originate? Um, it was... May of 2020 and little Richard passed away. And whenever someone dies, who is a great artist, you hear their music all over. So in the midst of the pandemic, that was so challenging and dark. And I'm sitting at home in my pajamas, eating too much chips and dip. Little Richard came into my life. And this music gave me a lot of joy. Um, I went to see if there had been a doc made because I wanted to learn more about him and I um, could not find anything. And then um, my managers called me and said, hey, there's a company called Bungalow Entertainment and they want to do a project about Little Richard. And I was like, and they were like, are you, they couldn't even say, are you interested? I was like, who do I talk to? When can I talk to them? Because it had been, you know, I had been spending a lot of time not only listening to Tutti Fruity and Jenny Jenny, but I was listening to his gospel music. And sometimes when I was feeling a little kooky, I'd listen to his children's song, Rubber Ducky. And I was like, what kind of person can do all of this, can have influenced the Beatles can and Bob Dylan, who wanted to be in, he wanted to be Little Richard, who, who is this person? We, we don't know anything about his journey and how he was more than his talk show appearances where he would just tell people to shut up. So from that starting point, 
how did you start to to dig into his story where you know a lot of the living witnesses are are now past the the start for the doc was doing a really broad archival sweep to make certain that I could find little Richard's voice to narrate his cradle to grave story. Um, I, because in reading, you know, his autobiography that he co-wrote with Charles White and other, you know, um, watching interviews, I sense he always struggled with being made invisible, not being recognized as the king, as the innovator, as the creator of, as an architect, as he always said, of rock and roll. And so it was important for me to center his voice. And once we knew that Richard could narrate his story, I always do these graphs when I'm working on films of, okay, what are the categories that I need to cover? You know, friends, family, uh, musicians, uh, scholars. Who who am I? Who do I think are the voices that would be so fantastic to include? Mick Jagger. Who are the voices that are equally important for their scholarly perspective? Dr. Jason King for Dara Hadley, who's an ethnomusicologist. Um, and I was very intentional that my scholars who commented on, and were in dialogue with Richard throughout the film are black and many of them queer because that's the world that he came from. And I think it's very important to um, kind of break the mold of who are the expected authorities on rock and roll's history. So the idea that rock and roll has its roots in black music may not be totally accepted in the mainstream, but I think it's, I think there's a substantial scholarship that already exists proving that, um, that your film adds to. What was new to me in your film was how the scholars in your film trace the roots of rock and roll back to so many queer performers, um, including Little Richard, but not only uh, uh, Little Richard, uh, that was a real revelation to me. And, and I wonder if it was to you. I didn't, I knew about Richard and his queerness. I didn't know that he had orgies with a Bible in the bed. That was something new to learn. But when I read about his connection to Sister Rosetta Tharp and then to Escarita and to Billy Wright, you could see this direct line of these artists who preceded him, who were out as much as they could be in the 40s and 50s and are so important to the actual architecture of rock and roll. It's one thing to have scholars uh, say that. Um, you actually did find some living witnesses uh, to this history, and and I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of them, uh, starting with Sir Lady Java. Uh, can you talk about who she is and, and how you found her? 
Richard had a girlfriend who he was connected to all of his life named Lee Angel. I only had her address and I went to Los Angeles and knocked on her door. Nobody answered. I scribbled a little note explaining who I was and the project I was working on and my number. And I went off to have my green juice with my fellow producers. And I looked down and my phone was, you know, on silence and, and I see all these missed calls. It's Lee Angel. I call her. She says, oh, I'd love to come and join you all and have breakfast. So we had a great time. Um, I was with Liz Gail Marsh and Karen Capitosto, who are also producers on this project. Um, our other producer, producer, Bobby Friedman, was in New York helming things here. But I was with these two fantastic ladies. Lee Angel joins us. And she says, well, you know, you have to meet my friend, Sir Lady Java, that who was very close to Richard. And I'm like, Sir Lady Java? That, that's quite a fabulous name. And then I learned that Sir Lady Java met Richard when they were both very young, in their early 20s, in California, and was one of the first uh, drag performers. She performed as a woman. Um, and is a true pioneer for LGBTQ rights because there were laws in the California clubs that restricted her performance. And she advocated to have those laws changed so that she could perform and not be criminalized. And just was and is one of the most lovely, calm, welcoming people in the world. And so um, that was how Sir Lady Java came into our life. And we shot in her home. And that's her gold throne that she is sitting in in the interview. Not production design. It's Not a bit. Uh, the only thing we didn't show in the film is her pink kitchen that is bedazzled. It is the most it's it Barbie couldn't have a kitchen as fabulous as this. <laughs> um, when you're making a film about uh, a music figure, um, you you said at the beginning that your first search was for all the footage that you could find. When it comes time to actually pulling the thing together, then it becomes not just what you want to use, but what you can use based on who's going to license you material and what it's going to cost and uh, and what your budget is. Can you talk about how negotiating access to music and footage maybe has small or large effects on the storytelling? Oh, it had tremendous effects. You know, it had a tremendous effect in that you, you couldn't tell the story without the music. Uh, our music supervisor, Jonathan Feingold, was tasked at the beginning making certain that we would be able to license from the two main kind of companies that Richard has association with. Sony Music Publishing, who owns all the publishing of the classic material, and Specialty Records, which is who is it's owned by Concord Records. 
there was in the beginning, it took a moment to get to a place that was fair for those entities and fair for our film to license the material. But actually the great thing that's happening is in May, we're going to release a soundtrack for the film, which is not only key music of by Richard, um, but also our incredible score by uh, Tamar Kali Brown. But, um, you know, the music is, is super important. And then, you know, the archival, um, we were very careful to be mindful of the sources that we were pulling our material from. Like, you know, you just can't go pulling stuff from YouTube because it's, it's, it's fantastic because when it comes time to, you know, deliver a film and you don't know who owns it, you certainly can't use it. We had an, uh, an additional, uh, you know, uh, archival team um, with uh, of, of Jackie Clary and Mara and, and just a whole bunch of folks hands on deck as we were locking picture to make certain that not only could we license or apply a fair use argument to some of the footage, but that it also fell into our um, our budget. Uh, Rolling Stone um, is one of the executive producers on the film, and both Jason Fine and Gus Wenner were were really great friends in helping us to, um, you know, uh, particularly on the archival front. You mentioned earlier that it, when you were coming up with your dream list of people that you would like to talk to, uh, Mick Jagger was on that list. Um, he describes in the film uh, that in the early days of the Rolling Stones, before they'd even had a hit, they toured with Little Richard. And for 30 days, he would watch Little Richard from backstage night after night uh, uh, studying him. Um, uh, what was that interview like? Uh, I was uh, relentless in trying to lock in an interview. Uh, it took uh, many months, and then one day Jason Fine called me and said, I think it was on like a Friday, he's like, can you be in London and do an interview on Tuesday with Mick Jagger? And I was like, I'm going to the airport right now. <laughs> I think I kept a suitcase at the front door. Uh, and they told me I had 20 minutes with Mick Jagger. Um I learned something really special in that interview. You know, typically the person arrives, you welcome them. Would you like some coffee? The restroom is there. You get the mic, you sit them down. But Mick Jagger came in and said, hey, why don't we chat for a little bit? And we ended up speaking for 10 or 15 minutes about music, why I wanted to make this film, Sister Rosetta Tharp and my obsession with her. And he got a sense of who I was and what my intention was with this film. So that by the time we started the interview, we had like a shared rapport of the story that was important for us to impart. Um, and it made for a, such a rich interview that after 20 minutes, I got all my questions in and I respectfully said, "I, you know, the 20 minutes is up and he goes, Oh, no, I'm good to chat further. Um, and then finally, you know, a little bit later, he said, do you have everything you need? It was one of the most gracious interviews. It was warm. He was funny. 
And I think with some of these artists like him and Tom Jones, you actually see them traveling back in time, remembering who they were at that moment when they saw Richard for the first time. And in the case of Mick Jagger, when they went on the road and they were not the Rolling Stones as we know them. As he said, we were a bar band. We had one hit, it was a cover. And I sat there for 30 nights in a row and watched him and was in his company. Um, and it was not a stock line. It was a very, it was incredibly heartfelt. And, and I think that emotionality that they brought in their interviews was, was really makes this, it's, it feels like family. If these are his family, this is, these are, you know, whether literal cousins or people in the musical family, they have such an intimate connection and regard for him. So when, when you're making a film, every day has its share of highs and lows. You know, you get the Mick Jagger interview, that's a high. And then the next day you learn that you don't have access to something else and that's a low, or you're in the edit room and something isn't coming together uh, like you want it to. Um, I wonder how you manage that, and given that this is your first really large-scale project uh, th that you're undertaking yourself, um, how did you manage those highs and lows? Well, Tom, you know, it's you got, in, you got to pick your battles. You have to lean into your team. Um, and I had the joy of working with two incredible editors. Our lead editor is Nanev Minier. Our other editor is Jake Hostetter. And um, we found ways to, um, if we couldn't have one thing, what can we create like a tutti frutti montage and make that so incredible? Or I wanted to do the dreamscapes, the musical performances by contemporary artists like Valerie June and Corey Henry and Pastor John P. Key, who are part of this extended family, this extended legacy. Like, okay, with, uh, you know, the whatever we had, how can we make them be incredible in one location but use them and incorporate into the film in a special way. And, you know, I think working with these editors, I was able to lean into the big vision that I held close to my heart and that, yeah, I prayed about it because I was like, I can't let little Richard down. Come on now. He's no wilting wallflower. You know, we got to come with the history, with the great interviews, with the incredible visual effects by Fod Schneiden. Like, and everybody, like, joined the bandwagon. And you could see from the beginning how the momentum grew and grew to make something that encompassed this incredible world that little Richard ignited when he arrived on the scene and despite the odds, you know, created a pathway that so many artists 
from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Prince to, you know, uh, Little Nas X and Harry Styles have had the opportunity to bring their talent, but to, to get into that path of possibility of, of, of being transgressive and changing culture, like he's the drop that starts the ripple. And we had to honor that in the storytelling. thank Lisa Cortez for speaking with me. Her new film, Little Richard, I Am Everything, is now streaming from HBO. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, marketing manager Bella Racklin, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.